Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's the World Soccer Talk podcast, the only podcast that focuses on watching soccer on TV, online, and apps. In episode 99, we discuss our observations from SoccerX USA and what it tells us about US soccer. An exclusive interview with the head of La Liga North America, how Major League Soccer's schedule changes could help their sagging TV ratings, and we have a bunch of letters from you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kartik Krishnayar. Now, Kartik, let's jump in right in, right into the deep end here. Uh, we're not going to go in through the uh, kind of the, uh, the short end of the pool. We're just going to go into the deep end, so forget the shallow part. But um, USA played two games this past week, uh, yeah. both of them friendlies. Um, I know you caught both of the matches. I caught the USA-Italy match and most of the USA-England match. It was happening at the same time of the SoccerX conference. Before we get into kind of a lot of the minutiae, but what's your first first opinions of these games, but actually the last few months or the last year in terms of under US soccer? It's just been embarrassing. I mean, I think... These two matches, they were friendlies, and I don't like overreacting to friendlies. Historically, I haven't liked overreacting to friendlies one way or another, but uh, these two matches were embarrassing performances. Uh, They're a disjointed side. Players who I think, once again, in classic U.S. men's national team and U.S. soccer fandom fashion have been over overhyped by large elements of the fa- fan base and some of the media. Now, I'm going to say some of the media, not as much of the media as before, because I think the media has taken a much more responsible uh, tone in the last year, maybe even a more bitter tone uh, toward uh, towards the national team and towards the players. They seem to be questioning everything, with a few exceptions. There are still, you know, your good soldiers for the U.S. Soccer Federation and Major League Soccer that are out there in the reporter pool, in the in the journalist pool. But I think, by and large, uh, there's been a dramatic change in 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 reactions to anything associated with this national team or this federation over the course of the last. Uh, I would say not even 12 months, I'd say over the last six to eight months. So uh, it, it, it was, it was humiliating. I mean, the, the game, the game against England was 
and I've been watching the U.S. men's national team for 30 years, and it was a friendly, and there were competitive matches like the game against the Czech, uh, Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia, then Czechoslovakia in 1990 in the World Cup, um, a game, obviously, at the Copa America in 2016 uh, against uh, against Argentina, a game against Costa Rica and qualifying in 2009 down in Saprissa that were very embarrassing and where the U.S. looked completely uncompetitive. But I think... This match ranks up with them, this match at Wembley, considering it was an England B team. It, it was really the, the, the preferred side for the U.S. at this point, their, their full team, given uh, that Michael Bradley and Jersey Altador had been run off. So essentially it was the first team for the United States. And they were they can't they cannot. Uh, the technical skill isn't there. They don't read the game quickly enough. Uh, they're very uncomfortable on the ball. The majority of American players, uh, their, their touches are, 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 are loose and, and uh, the creativity is not there. I mean, there are all kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, from a media perspective, which is what we do on this podcast, I think this was interesting because uh, I felt like during that match, and I was also at Soccer X with you, Chris, and, and I left early uh, so that I, I could go back to my office and watch this match in my office and, and listen to some commentary. Uh, along with a couple of uh, of my coworkers, and um, boy, I think Taylor Twelman was chomping at the bit from about minute two onward. And Ian Dark, being the professional broadcaster he is, um, didn't necessarily let it take on the tone of that U.S. Costa Rica match in uh, Harrison at Red Bull Arena uh, fourteen months ago. He kept Twelman in check. He wasn't positive, mm-hmm. but he was kind of drawing a picture of saying, hey, it's a young U.S. team. There's coaching uncertainty. There's all sorts of uncertainty in the federation, lack of direction. Uh, while I, I, I got the sense Twelman was just chomping at the bit to, to, to rip them, uh, which he more or less did. And then uh, in, late in the second half, the focus became Wayne Rooney more than uh, than anything U.S. related. But it was um, it was a very uh, uh, interesting broadcast from um, – from uh, from ESPN. And, and I think the thing that uh, was pretty apparent to me is that there doesn't seem to be any sort of um, pulling of punches any longer uh, on uh, on television, even on Fox. We'll get to that in a few minutes, uh, depending on who's rotated through the Fox studio. But it seems like we're now at a point where the frustration level has boiled over and the stakes could not be higher because I have to reinforce this again, Chris, and I, I think you probably feel the way, same way. Having been around the sport as long as we have been, there are a lot of newbies who come to the sport through recent MLS expansion who, who think uh, of the national team as just this weak this weak entity that they're not really concerned about. Um, there is a shelf life for for most new MLS clubs, as far as them being a shiny new thing. And, and uh, same thing with USL. Uh, they, they, they often, not often, they normally, with the exception of Seattle and Portland, regress toward the mean eventually. Uh, if the U.S. men's national team remains this uncompetitive uh, on a global scale, this is the least competitive the U.S. has been since around the time of the 90 World Cup. Uh, if you look at the macro uh, global scene, maybe maybe even less competitive than in 90, because 90, we, we think of that first game against Czechoslovakia, but the U.S. was actually competitive in the next two matches. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then competitive for the next several years. The so 98 World Cup was actually kind of an aberration. People don't realize this now, historically speaking. The U.S. went into the 1998 World Cup playing very well uh, and having beaten some European uh, sides on European soil, among other things. And then it just fell apart because of 
other in, you know internal player with Alder versus Harks, that whole thing, um, things that that were out of the control of of, of the manager and the management. Um, but uh, this is probably the worst the national team's been in thirty years. Let's be let's be frank about it. And um, that is has been the driver of domestic soccer popularity. I know there's a there's a generation of kids playing FIFA who are uh, in love with the Premier League or in love with La Liga, whatever. But in terms of domestic soccer growth, sustainability, uh, the men's national team cannot be this uncompetitive and us continue to uh, have conferences like Soccer X, Chris, where everyone is talking about how great the U.S. market is. Okay. And I, and, and, and that conference, maybe we'll jump right to it now. I felt well, like well, there well, was. Let, a, me, let, let me jump in, Kartik, because you've, yeah. you've gone over a lot of stuff here. I mean, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the, the youth players that are coming through the U.S. ranks. Uh, it's good to see them getting a lot of playing time. There is some uh, definitely, I, I guess, uh, kind of pearls. There are there are some glimmers of hope there, where some of these players could could go on to to be uh, better players and, and probably good players. Um, I'm concerned at this rate that the U.S. men's national team may not qualify for World Cup 20, uh, 2020, uh, 2022, pardon me, uh, in, in Qatar. And if so, this could set us back, back to, to the 1980s. The last time that the U.S. didn't qualify for two World Cups in a row was 1982 and 1986. In uh, 1990, they, they made it, of course. But uh, in terms of the playing level, and also in terms of the popularity of the sport in this country, like you said, Kartik, the main driver of the popularity of soccer in the United States has been the U.S. men's national team. And we've, we just saw this past summer what happens when the U.S. men's national team is not competing in a tournament. Fox shuts down. They essentially say, OK, let's uh, forget that budget. We're, we're scaling back. We're losing money. And we're going to go with kind of a, a very... I mean, kind of a kind of a kind of a lean, mean machine to try to uh, to actually uh, f- focus on this, and and that's my biggest concern. At the end of the day, is that uh, is is that we could be entering a phase where soccer becomes not a niche sport, but a very it's a lower sport. And if you're a fan of the Premier League, Bundesliga, you mean uh, Superliga, whatever it may be. You will continue to be, to be able to see those games and those the, those sports, but you're probably not going to get as much coverage on, on the the national mainstream media. But yeah, Kartik, uh, in terms of uh, the playing level and, and the performances, uh, I, to me it comes down to the playing level, and the playing level is just just not uh, not as good as these other teams. And you see, you see with England, with a lot of these youth players coming through the system. Um, they, uh, for, for whatever reason, whether it's coaching, whether it's more playing time, whether it's playing at, at a higher level in the Premier League or uh, with, with um, Sancho playing in, in the Bundesliga, you play at a very high level. And, and this, to me, is very, very... I, it's depress- I'm not sure it's that, that matters because, to be perfectly honest with you, the Premier League, I think, is, and I'm not the only one who thinks this. I know Premier League apologists get angry when I say it, but I, the league is not as good as it was five years ago. It's not as. It's, it's not, definitely not as. Good it's not as good as, 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 it, as it was ten years ago. No, it, but, but England. But, but that's more, that's more the entertainment. Ten years ago. Yeah, but but to well, me, well, the, yeah, yeah. But it's more the entertainment. It's the level of the Premier League. I don't think it's the level of the Premier League that's making England as good as they are now. I think well, it's the investment of their federation in 
youth program playing structure and a playing style. And Gareth Southgate has a lot to do with that because he had taken the reins of those youth teams. That's why Spain was so successful when they were successful, although they had La Liga. Um, Look, Major League Soccer is a lot of people on this podcast don't want to hear it because they hate MLS that listen to this podcast. But MLS is stronger than it's ever been from a playing standpoint. It is not a well, bad league anymore. It's not the league you think it is. It's, but it's, the U.S. It's, it's is better. worse than any point since MLS was created. So there's no correlation really between the strength of the league and the strength of the national team. Yes, there the is, Kartik. There is. No, no. Oh, my it goodness. There is. The Absolutely. So, Kartik, let, let me chime in just for a second. Okay. Uh, is that Major League Soccer as a league, as a, as a playing level, has improved. It's improved mostly because of South American players, Central American players, Mexican players, players from south, south of the United States. Those, those levels have increased. So Jamaica's gotten better. Mexico's gotten better. Costa Rica's gotten better. The, uh, Panama's gotten better. And, and the playing level across the board for Major League Soccer has gotten better. There aren't that many good American players playing in Major League Soccer. And, and there's, there's only one major player who's playing in Europe, and that's Pulisic. Uh, but the Premier League is not as good as it used to be. To me, it's, it's partly uh, playing level isn't as good as it used to be, but also entertainment factor. It's gotten kind of predictable, especially this season with you know, the top four teams running away with it. But at the end of the day, whether you're competing in the Champions League or compete, competing in the Premier League, that playing level, that coaching level is much, much, much higher than Major League Soccer. Relative to MLS. Oh, re- relative to MLS it is. I'm not arguing that. But I would argue in 2010 when Germany embarrassed England in the World Cup, um, Mark Lawrenson and all these people before the uh, – and uh, Alan Hansen were mocking the German squad because they're like, ah, these guys played Werder Bremen. They play, you know, Ozil was at Werder Bremen. That one stood stands yeah, out. that's Mark Lawrenson. was at Hamburg. Well, no, no, but the general consensus was the Bundesliga wasn't a very competitive league compared to England or Spain or even Italy at the time. Yeah. Guess but- what happened in, in that World Cup? Guess what had happened in the previous Euros um, in, in 2008? Look at how far Germany got in that. There is not a direct correlation between the level, because most leagues are now sustained on foreign players uh, at all, all these leagues. Serie A. Uh, Serie A is stronger than it's been any point in the last 10 years. Italy is weaker than any point in the last 10 years. So I, I don't think there's a direct correlation. What I do think there is is a lack of um, a lack of investment and a lack of understanding of what you need to do with your domestic infrastructure to grow domestic players. England finally figured that out, watching the Dutch, watching the French, watching the Germans, watching the Spanish and how they did it. Italy is now figuring it out, by the way. So they're going to get better in the next uh, five to ten years. They're going to kind of reboot this whole thing and, and, and look for them to have a, a, a renaissance. The U.S., nothing. Nothing. I yeah, mean, it's just I agree all I agree. I, empty, I, I... empty promises. What I would say about the Italy-USA game, um, so that one I did listen to and did watch. Uh, the England-USA game, I was watching at SoccerX, but it was on mute, so I couldn't hear the, the actual commentary. The Italy-USA game with uh, John Strong and Stu Holden, uh, very very bland. There was, I mean, really no critical analysis, or very, very little critical analysis. John Strong was just do, doing his usual thing. Uh, Stu Holden was very talkative uh, as a co-commentator, but didn't really say much of value, uh, wasn't being very critical. And it was very bland, just like the USA's performance. I was hoping at halftime that Lalas would kind of would get in and, and Moadu would kind of get in with some uh, some harsh criticisms or some some reality in, in there. 
Um, but it's almost as if, like, I think Lalas has given up on this team. He just seems despondent, um, <laughs> and, and, seriously, and and didn't provide any anything of value other than like, you mean, you mean this is ridiculous type of thing. Um, and, and then po- post match, I missed it. So post match, I did tune in to see. Uh, I missed the post match analysis, but I did tune in to see uh, what Grant Wall had said, um, which became kind of breaking news at the time. What's your take on uh, Lopetegui and, and what Grant Wall reported, Kartik? Well, first off, I, I, I tend to agree with you on Lalas. I actually liked his analysis after the game. I didn't watch halftime. I was watching Univision at the time. Um, I think he I think he is despondent. I think he's very clearly just not not, not amused by what he sees. And even though people would accuse Lalas previously of having been a cheerleader for these guys, I mean, he is a guy who cares deeply about this national team program. So I think he's kind of... He, he he's crossed the line now where he's just not not uh, amused. And also, I would have to say there's a big difference between having Kate Abdo in the studio with him and Rob Stone. Rob Stone is the ultimate cheerleader, you know, waving the American flag, glass, uh, glass half uh, or glass, even, you know, eighth full type guy. Right. Um, <laughs> it's empty um, on ter- in terms of the Lopetegui news. Well, it speaks for itself. I mean, if this is true, this is an absolute embarrassment. Um I, I just don't I don't know how a manager of that stature who did not lose a match as Spain manager who did such a good job. We talked about the youth teams a minute ago. I was talking about Gareth Southgate. Um, OK, let's talk about Spain. Lopetegui developing those youth teams, then getting those guys as a full national side after an embarrassing World Cup in 2014 and after a Euro in 2016 where Spain crashed out um, in the round of 16. And, and never really looked right. He takes over the team. He bend, uh, uh, beds in the youth that he had had as the youth national team coach before he'd gone off and, and managed Portugal. And uh, they were, I thought, the best national team coming into the World Cup. Now, obviously, we know what happened with him in Real Madrid. It's tough to say no to Real Madrid. I understand that. In retrospect, it was the wrong decision. But a guy like that knocks on your door, Chris, and you say... No, thank you. We we're good. Yeah. I, I and I just I don't even have words to describe it. Really, yeah. And and for listeners who who missed the segment um, post match, it was uh, Grant Wall reporting talking about the um, the search for a U.S. men's national team coach, uh, looking at Greg Berhalter as as the favorite. But that Grant had mentioned that he had gotten a call. Uh, that somebody had said that uh, Lopetegui had um, uh, shown his interest in in the job. But the response from U.S. soccer was uh, at this stage in the process, it's too late, which the process, as far as we know, is one interview with one person. Um, and, and, and that's the thing at the end of the day, which we're not going to get into too deep here, Kartik, because it's focused more on the media. But the, the entire process is laughable from this past 12 months, um, trying the search to find the manager, uh, how long this has been stretched out, the poor communication. You mean on and on and on, and just the lack of. You mean this is one of the biggest countries in the world that has some of the, the biggest resources in the world, has some of the biggest opportunities in the world, and you're interviewing one guy who's you mean kind of connected to U.S. soccer because of his brother. This is ridiculous. Let, let, let me point out something to push back, uh, because no one can actually justify them not talking to Lopetegui uh, if he was interested. No, no, even even the most diehard pro USSF person uh, out there in, in the fan zone can't can't justify that just because his record speaks for itself and his pedigree speaks for itself. So now the spin this morning, as we record this Wednesday AM, Chris, is that oh well, they must have had a pre-contract already with Burhalter. You're sitting on a hundred and fifty million dollars surplus. 
that you're not willing to even uh, invest in any other sort of uh, I- infrastructure. You know, you're not willing to listen to the Taylor Twelmans and Kyle Martinos of the world as to what to do with, uh, with with that money. You're just sitting on it. So if you already had a pre-contract with Burhalter, okay. Talk to Lopetegui. Maybe he gives you some suggestions that you can then implement with Burhalter. Maybe you're thinking, okay, he actually wants to coach this national team. Here's the job, and you and you pay off Burhalter's contract somehow. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what you do. You're sitting on 150 million dollars surplus. To so those people who say, oh well, you know, maybe there was a pre-contract already, and there was a pre-contract already after we know Jesse Marsh never got a phone call, Peter Vermees never got a phone call, Tata Martino never got a phone call, and Burhalter already has a pre-contract. Well, that. Uh, that would be uh, pretty, uh, I think, pretty Damn. revealing about this whole thing. Damning. Damning yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's the thing, though, too, is, is Greg Berhalter could end up being a good coach for the U.S. men's national team. But uh, to me, at least open up the horizons to, to talk to some other individuals rather than have any heart set on this one person. And maybe they're thinking, I'm sure they're thinking monetarily, let's go with somebody that's uh, American, that's going to be less less pay, that's going to be closer to the players, that understands the U.S. players in quotation marks, and, and, and let's go that path. And uh, That would be exactly it, the Lopetegui thing. Let's just get, get to the bottom, yeah. uh, bottom line. There might be the, oh, we love MLS, we want to promote an American. There's also, oh, gosh, this guy will probably cost too much money. Let's go with the cheap option. That's the way wow. these, these business people in the U.S. Federation and in Major League Soccer think a lot of times. And it's a foreigner. So, I mean, that, oh, that, wow. well, that too, right? <laughs> All right, Kartik, let's move on from the U.S. Uh, depression and talk about uh, England elation. And first of all, England-USA game. I mean, I, I watched the game again on mute, but um, just a really controlling performance there by England. But uh, against the it was an England B team going into then Sunday's game, which was a do or die game. We knew going into this game, it was like if Croatia wins this game, they go through to the finals of the UEFA Nations League. If England goes, uh, wins it, they go through. And what a match, especially the, the last 20 minutes to this game. And, th- and this was really, I think, a perfect example of several games this UEFA Na- Nations League uh, window have been amazing. And this is probably one of the best ones. Just a, you know, just end-to-end action. The game really stretched apart. And, I mean, both teams going for it. And what an ending. What an ending to this match. Yeah, and, and obviously we had... Um... Uh, again, Ian Dark and Taylor Coleman calling their second England match in four days, uh, them losing the signal uh, and us getting Peter Drury for about 10 or 15 minutes. And that included the time when Croatia scored, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and then they went back to Dark and Twelman. Uh, Twelman's analysis is, you know, this, this, this is the thing. Twelman is not out of place. Uh, when he calls matches with European na- uh, national teams or uh, uh, European club games, he doesn't get the call very often. But uh, European uh, national team matches, he seems to to know both these teams very well. Now, obviously, I think Croatia and England are two of the more prominent national teams on the planet. But um, really good call, really high-level uh, match with a great atmosphere. And it, the Nations League, we all took to the Nations League this week. Seb Salazar on ESPN FC said uh, – <laughs> opened one of the shows this week like okay are we still thinking the nation's league are friendlies and seb seb's right i I think i've shifted my my view this week i really enjoyed it i mean not just this match we'll get to the other matches in a minute but uh there have been a number of high level um go go for broke matches uh, on this final match day of the of the nation's league now the only thing that makes it a little um 
unfortunate is the three team group. So it's unbalanced. And, and, and like in the case of this, uh, this England, Croatia game, Spain was helpless. There were such, there were, uh, uh, scenarios under which Spain would, uh, win the group or finish second. I don't think there was a scenario under which they could get relegated, but mm-hmm. the two teams that were coming in, there were uh, scenarios under which they could both win the group or get relegated, which is what happened to Croatia. But, uh, 10 minutes before the end, they were, uh, they were obviously winning. Um, they were winning the group, right? They were going on to the semis. And yep. then there were two, 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 two great uh, opportunities for uh, England, and, and they scored on both of them. So, and Croatia had several chances to, to, to go up 2-0 uh, when they were up 1-0. And prior to that, England had several chances that they didn't take. No, and we, we've complained about this from England before, the lack of clinical finishing. But when they needed the goals, which we saw also over the summer in the World Cup, when they had the chances and they needed uh, to come through, they did. What, what an atmosphere. What a game. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant stuff. And I, that, that one I watched on Univision Deportes in Vivo. I was actually at Starbucks. Uh, I dropped off my kid for a soccer practice and uh, could not get back to home, home in time. So I watched it in Starbucks using uh, my Fubo TV login to access, uh, to authenticate with the Univision Deportes in Vivo app. And yeah, great stuff. So then Monday, Kartik was Germany against Netherlands. Oh, wow. Another incredible game. I mean, this, 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 I mean, this one probably, this one probably, probably might have been my favorite game. This was one that, I mean, Germany seemed to be in control, had their chances. Uh, all of a sudden, it's okay. The Germans are back. A lot of these youth players coming through, some, some doing better than others. And then, and then Holland starts to come back towards uh, what, the last 10 minutes in this game. And another just thrilling end to this game and, and Netherlands getting the, uh, the 2-2 draw which is enough to uh, move them through to also to the UEFA, UEFA Nations League uh, Final Four. Yeah, this is probably my favorite uh, match of the week also. Uh, just a good call from Mike, Mark Donaldson and Janusz uh, Michalik, who it's great to have him on um, ESPN. He, he's not getting enough uh, airtime or, or FaceTime in, 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 in my, for my liking on ESPN or Fox or any of the networks in the States. Uh, but really good to have him uh, – on this, on the mic for this match, uh, I have to mention the Netherlands game uh, at, that that we ended Soccer X week with. Again, I left early on Friday, unlike you, so I I uh, jumped early partly to watch Netherlands France, and it was just a fantastic game. This this young Dutch team has really captured me in this Nations League. I, I haven't wanted to miss any of their matches, uh, which is interesting because. Six to, eight, six to eight months ago, we thought Holland was uh, was falling into football abyss, kind of yeah. like the U.S. Yeah. But certainly, the Ronald Koeman um, getting sacked by Everton was probably a very fortunate thing for the Dutch Federation. Uh, he's revived them. This was such a good game, and you, you had the feeling that Germany was teetering on the edge, right? They had chances to really put the match away. They didn't. Uh, Timo Werner had had a, had a great chance, a guilt edge chance that he pushed just wide. Um, the belief from the Dutch began to come uh, at, at about, I, I want to say it was like the 77th minute. I, 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 big, I thought, you know what? They might get both these goals back. Yep. Prom scores, and then you knew. You knew at that moment they were going to get an equalizer. It was one of those, you know what I'm saying? Chris? Yeah, when totally, you, totally. You, you can sense it. You mean, yeah. I mean, some players say they, they can smell it, but but it was one of those things you were like, okay, I, I got to watch this. I, I think they're, they're going to score. I think they're, they're, yeah. they're going to get the equalizer, and, and yes, they did. And Virgil van Dijk, um, as Donaldson and Janus uh, uh, kept pointing out, just uh, he, he's now, I think, and they talk about this on ESPN FC a lot, he's now just turning into this elite club and country player mm-hmm. uh, that 
central defenders we don't talk about as much. But when you look at what Liverpool spent for him, you thought, gosh, that's a lot of money for a non-attacking player. I mean, I think it might be a world record, right, for a player that's not a midfielder or, or, or it's up there. A, yeah. a striker. Yeah, but um, he, he's his leadership, too, with a young Dutch team, because the guys around him are all very, very young, other than uh, like Ryan Babbles back in the team. But generally, it's it's a very young team. And he and, and, and Vijnaldum, another uh, Liverpool player, just providing, uh, although he was off the pitch when uh, these two goals were scored, um, just providing invaluable uh, leadership. So the Dutch have been fun. And I uh, want to point out, Chris, ESPN FC all week has been uh, has been very good Nations League week. They have shown a number of their um, uh, shows on ESPN, too. So this is something for our listeners to take note of. I, I, and I noticed it in September of, in October. I just thought it was very random. Now I realize it's, it's, it's a deliberate programming decision that um, – that they don't advertise, unfortunately, because you know they want you to sign up for ESPN Plus, right? Uh, that's what where they're pushing you. But uh, they do show ESPN FC several nights during uh, the Nations League. Actually, from actually, I would say from Thursday to to Monday, the duration of Nations League, they will show it on ESPN two at some point. So if you have uh, cable or satellite, just check your programming guide. The next Nations League. Well, I guess we don't have another Nations League match day, so who knows? Yeah. Next Nations League. Just check it out. Right, exactly. Yeah, and ESP- ESPN Plus is actually offering now a seven-day free trial. So if you are interested in that and you haven't signed up yet, whether it's for ESPN FC or also the Serie A and all the other matches they have, um, check out the homepage at uh, worldsoccertalk.com. Next up, we have an interview to discuss one of the biggest stories to come out of club soccer in the United States in the history of the sport, and that is the prospect of La Liga playing a series of league games in the United States. To learn more about the thinking behind this, here's our interview with Boris Gartner, CEO of La Liga North America. So let's jump right in and talk about uh, Girona against Barcelona, January, end of January, hopefully in Miami. Can you tell us more about what the platform is? So from La Liga's uh, point of view and La Liga USA, um, how would you position it and why do you believe that this game should be played in the United States and um, whether there should be more games in the future over the next, say, 14, 15 years of of the agreement with relevant sports? Sure. So first and foremost, uh, we absolutely believe and are convinced uh, that having an official league match in the U.S. will help grow soccer here. Um, this is not, you know, uh, as you guys know, this is not a mature industry in the U.S. by any means. It's a growing industry. We are, uh, you know, really believers that anything and everything that anyone can do to help grow soccer here will help us all. So, you know, from... MLS having better teams, better players, more attendance, um, the Miami team, great. Anything that can be done to help grow the sport, it's going to be to the benefit of all of us. So that's that's kind of the, the, the main thing that we start off, right? Sure. Um, we, we really want to get this one game off the ground. Uh, we're not focusing on you know doing more after. We just want to make sure that this one is done right and that we can actually prove uh, some of the people that are against it that this is going to be helpful for the sport here um, I don't think it's sustainable either for La Liga or for the local market here to think that you're going to be doing 
10 games. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just not. I mean, right. the power of La Liga continues to be the local, you know, fans and clubs, and you need to respect that. Yeah. Uh, but we're talking about one game here. I think it sometimes get, gets blown out of proportion, um, and that this will, you know, be the demise of the MLX. It's not. I mean, again, it's one game. I think if we do it right in a town like Miami um, and use it to help promote soccer even more, actually potentially partnering with the new team here in Miami, helping, helping them, you know, uh, launch... Yeah, I think it helps. Yeah. So, so the NFL has games overseas. NBA has games overseas. Now we have soccer that's through La Liga trying to be a trailblazer to get games played overseas. And it's just one game for now. Do, do you think in some ways that soccer as a sport is, is behind NFL and, and behind NBA? And is La Liga looking at the NFL and NBA and saying, okay, we need to compete with them and, and, and try and expand globally? So from a business perspective, I have no doubt that uh, soccer in general, you know, is behind, you know, what you can see with NFL or NBA from a, from a pure business perspective, right? Um, all the leagues here from the U.S. have been playing games outside, started with some exhibition matches, then official league matches. MLB had their opener in Japan this season. Um, NFL, I think a couple weeks announced that they're going to be doing four games a season in London. Um, and it's only helped grow the fandom for the sport and helped grow the industry. So that's that's the way we see it. I mean, it's 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 a soccer is a global sport. It has a growing fandom here in the U.S. Uh, why not help grow it faster? Sure. And and looking at kind of a best case scenario. So if you had say the Spanish Players Federation, you had uh, UEFA, you had USSF, you had Concacaf, and, and, and La Liga and the teams, and everyone was in agree in agreement. In the best case scenario. What would this relationship look like year after year? What's, so, what's the vision? Actually, that, that, that's a great question because with the joint venture in general between Relevant and La Liga, the main thing that has been picked up you know, for the past three months since we launched is the game. Um, but the, the, the idea, the plan, and the partnership is much broader than that. We're going to be investing millions of dollars over that 15-year period and actually helping at the grassroots level to develop soccer here in the U.S. So youth academies, women's tournaments, coaching tournaments, uh, sorry, co coaching academies, all those things just to make sure that we're actually at a grassroots level growing soccer here. So that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is we're going to have a very aggressive content strategy primarily on social and digital. Two main reasons, but the first one, and I'll get in, into that in a bit with the audience that we that we think we should be reaching. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that you know soccer following uh, in the U.S. is younger; it's more mobile, it's more social. So we want to make sure that we are delivering the content in the platforms that they're at, yeah. not just thinking you know they're gonna tune in on, on, on the TV and that's it. So that multi-platform content approach is incredibly important for us. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the other piece of it, we want to go to certain key markets that we've identified in the U.S. and not just pop in, do a two-hour event and leave. We really want to make sure that we're uh, hitting those markets constantly and through a long period of time. So our plan is during five years, we've, we've picked five cities, mm -hmm. uh, five markets, and we're going to be constantly doing events of all sizes. You can have, you know, uh, a programming for three or four days with an anchor event that might be uh, 
you know, legends match or a women's match or a, a, a classical watching party, whatever it might be. But we want to make sure that we're actually going to those markets, building our relationship with the fans there yeah. and actually committing to grow soccer domestically. Okay. Now, looking at the level of investment, so I'm looking at everything you've mentioned in terms of a lot of like, you know, grassroots efforts, uh, academies for players and, and coaching, uh, a lot of, I'm sure, festivities, fan fests, and a lot of things going into this. I would expect that in, in many ways this is going to be an investment where initially this is probably, it's a loss. It's, it's, it's not the, into, so for La Liga and, and relevant sports and, and having, having this partnership together for the next 15 years, what are the, the, what's the where's the revenue coming from? So, right. so the games like, like the Girona and Barcelona game, whether it's played in Miami or played uh, in Girona in Spain, it's, it's, it's one match. But, so where does the TV revenue come from? Because right. even the game itself would be part of the it's, La Liga yeah. you know, rights worldwide. Sure. So, so that's a great question. We, we look at it in two different ways. Uh, the main one is that uh, we actually believe that by growing the brand here and having a stronger presence, the value of the brand will grow. And you monetize that with the TV rights, right? Yeah. So having a really strong following for La Liga uh, should you know, be you know, allow us to actually charge more for the TV rights on the, on the upcoming cycles, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. that's the kind of pretty straightforward one. The other one, we believe that with a, you know as a, a media business, we can have a series of platforms, digital, social events and activations that we can create sponsorship opportunities around it. Um, And, you know, that's a a revenue component of it. And then the last one, of course, is looking at the matches in the long run. Um, And I'm not going to get into the details of of, of the economics, but as a whole, you know, within the 15 years, the matches should be actually a a, a decent revenue source as well. Um, following up on the grassroots piece and youth academies, etc., uh, we already have a Barcelona Academy here in Fort Lauderdale, a Real Madrid Academy here in Miami, just speaking to yep. this, this area, South Florida. Um, what will La Liga do in partnership with Relevant to work with the clubs that have already invested in the U.S. market? Most La Liga clubs haven't, but those two I mentioned, Barcelona and Real Madrid, they're not new to South Florida, at least. They've invested here already. Uh, how will you coordinate with them? Right, and, and I'll use one specific example with a club that we're collaborating closely in it's Sevilla. Um, they announced about three weeks ago that they were launching three academies, uh, two in New Jersey and actually one in Miami. Um, Sevilla uh, might not be one of the you know top two teams, but they're... A really important team. Actually, I think they're on second place right now. Yeah, they're at a really uh, table, right? Right, um, and they have a really strong following in the U.S. So what we're doing is looking at team by team and analyzing what is their U.S. or North American strategy, and if there is one, how can we come in and support with Sevilla? helping them uh, develop the, uh, the academies that they're launching, trying to get people in, getting to, to show the Sevilla brand more, just to help them build out. And then there's other teams that do not have a U.S. strategy that we think you know, they should. And I'll use you know, uh, an example here, uh, Betis. They have Guardal. Guardal with you know, Mexicans here in the U.S. is huge. We are actually a big proponent of let's find which are those teams that have already an anchor that they might not be aware that it is to a U.S. audience here, and let's actually go and build it up. We've seen uh, some clubs previously, Alaves, uh, 
Ryder Viacano, others invest in lower division teams in the United States. It hasn't gone that well for either one of them, but the, the initiative has been there, and obviously maybe the market wasn't ready for it. Uh, is that something you have talked to Relevant about in the next 10 or 15 years, investing in uh, helping your teams, La Liga teams, uh, choose investments again in U.S. lower divisions potentially? A hundred percent, and actually think about it. La Liga, at the end of the day, their objective is to service the clubs, right? In kind of simple terms. So anything and everything that we do here in the U.S., of course, has to help the La Liga brand, but at the end of the day, it has to help the clubs. And, you know, in all the conversations that we've had, there's some clubs that might not think they need the help or not want the help, and it's fair, and there's others that are more open to just actually getting a lot of help. So from consulting on whatever the strategy is here, uh, collaboration with MLS teams, all of that. So we, we're right now actually going club by club and understanding their needs and their strategy and trying to map it out with uh, what we see the opportunities are here in the U.S. Uh, in the West Coast and some areas like Idaho even, there's a big, a large Basque population. Sociedad Athletic Bilbao, have you worked with them about potentially tapping into that market? Is that a long-term goal? Right. So the, so the plan that we have is we want to meet with each of the clubs, again, just to do a deep dive, uh, present, this is a joint venture, this is what we can do for you guys, what are your needs, and actually map that out. Uh, we haven't gotten to go to, uh, to the full 20 teams of first division or the 22 from second division. Um, we're, we're, we're going through that, but you're absolutely right. That's the idea. It's just find the opportunities that might be different from team to team, but that we can help them execute. How confident are you that this can get approved, this first game? Because it, we're running out of time. There's a lot of uh, approvals that are needed through different federations and different, uh, different organizations. How confident is La Liga this, that this will happen? Listen, I, I, we're operating under the assumption that it happens, so we're, we're confident. We know that there is still a big part of the process that needs to uh, uh, that we need to clear. Uh, and to your point, you know, the game is January 26, mm -hmm. so we just need to make sure that we solve it fast. So we're confident that we will get to January 26. But if for whatever reason we can't mm -hmm. operationally, we'll think about a game in September. So this is not a, a, a once-and-done deal. Again, 15-year joint venture, it's a key piece of it. Uh, we believe that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So we'll do everything that's in our hands to actually get it off the ground for January 26. And if we can't, none of that work will be lost. You know, we'll put it in work for a September match or sure. whatever it might be. So what about the USSF? Have there been any conversations with them as far as discussions about trying to set the groundwork to explain your side and see if, if something can be approved? Right. So um, what we decided early on when we were talking about this uh, almost a year ago, because that's the other thing. This is not something that we woke up one day and said, well, let's do a match. And we started you know, creating chaos here, right? This is a well thought you know, uh, uh, strategy. Uh, for La Liga, and so uh, we actually informally have met with all the parties that uh, that should be involved. Um, and the conclusion, what they actually told us is, just follow the process. Mm -hmm. And whenever you know you get to us here, then we'll have that conversation. Okay. So that's what we've been doing. Um, understand what there, why there might be you know concerns about it, positions. We'll try to show our position and, and have a constructive conversation. 
we we have not you know uh, submitted an official request to U.S. Soccer or to Concacaf mm -hmm. because we need to go first to the Spanish Federation and UEFA. Right. So once we do that and we get here, we'll sure. we'll, we'll have the conversation. So Kartik, I'm going to put you on the spot. So I, I know that uh, you're against the idea of having uh, foreign leagues playing games in the United States. Um, what would you say would be kind of some of the things that? Why you believe that? Well, I think the, the issue for me is more not about playing games in the United States, but more about local supporters. So if Hirona loses a match, loses a home match, and it's I don't care if it's moved to China, I don't care if it's moved somewhere else in Spain. I mean, my concern actually is more, I have a greater concern that eventually Real Madrid and Barcelona would turn around and tell Hirona or Valencia or whoever, well, Valencia won't happen because of their supporter space, but that's a bad example, but Granada or whoever, hey, uh, here's X amount of money, we'll move the game to the Bernabeu or to Camp Nou. I'm more concerned about that actually happening and then those teams acquiring extra, uh, additional home matches and the supporters of the local clubs being displaced because their clubs need money than actually the precedent of moving a game abroad. Um, just because I've seen this happen in American college sports, where Florida State will go to Maryland and buy out a game and say, let's move it to Miami or move it to Orlando, so we basically get another home game. Right. Um, so that's, it. I mean, is there a, a, a clear policy from La Liga that you will not allow Real Madrid to go to some smaller club and say, hey, let's move the match to the Bernabeu? Right, so, so there's a couple of things here. One, uh, the plan for the U.S. expansion, including the match, was approved unanimously by the uh, uh, governing board of La Liga that includes uh, 15 teams, right? So uh, I think that anything that you know goes beyond the actual regular competition would have to go to approval and you would have to have all those teams approved, right? So I, I, I get what you're saying, but I think that just from the way that uh, the regulations for La Liga are structured, it's tough for that to happen and then on the other hand I think that uh, uh, the main difference between you know that happening in La Liga compared to you know college sports here in the US is that you know those teams uh, in Spain are getting the bulk of the revenue from that local league from their local supporters right right so I, I think that risking you know what can be probably 70 or 80 percent of the revenue for a one-time deal, I don't think the, not, the numbers add up. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this also. Here's if, if we do do U.S. games, this is what I want to see. Rather than seeing Barcelona and Girona or Real Madrid and somebody, I'd love to see Villarreal versus Valencia, Sevilla versus Valencia. Those clubs that could build a U.S. fan base. For example, I think if the U.S. fan base were exposed to Valencia in particular because of how rabid their supporters are, like we talked about with the Bundesliga and Dortmund, oh, that might Real Betis or Real Betis is another one. Yeah, yeah. Betis. If yeah. you get Betis or Valencia to the U.S., that if you're going to do U.S. games, I'd rather prefer seeing that than Barcelona or Real Madrid. I, listen, I, I I I don't disagree. I think that we just need to start somewhere, right. um, and that's where we are right now. Again, I, I think it's from it's premature for us to think. You know, what's the next game, and are you doing? Five, like I, that's we would never do that, right? Uh, so we want to take, you know, this one, be able to do it, show that there's potential, that it's successful, and then start thinking about about the rest. But I, I, your Betty's example, I, I think it's perfect, and I think that um, the potential for them to grow their fan base here in the U.S. Again, I keep on using Guardado because it's I, I, 
yeah. based on the audience that, that, that watches soccer here in the U.S., you know, around 70% of Hispanics are Mexican descent. Sure. You have that tie in here. So I'm sure that if you take a Betis match to Chicago, you would have a sold-out building. Yeah. I could, I, you know, for sure. For sure. On, on that score, let me ask you, are La Liga clubs being encouraged to sign Mexican internationals? We've seen many coming out in and out of the league. I mean, we're, we're past the days of Hugo Sanchez and Rafa Marquez. We, we haven't had that high-profile player play for, for Barcelona or Real Madrid recently. Uh, Jonathan Dos Santos, obviously, Giovanni Dos Santos, but not at a high level. Have you encouraged your cl- uh, clubs for marketing purposes to... Listen, I... I... I think that as they start looking at the U.S. opportunity, understanding the demographics, understanding the potential audience that they have, uh, you'll see that that's an opportunity. Of course, it has to uh, match and follow their, you know, uh, sporting strategy, if you will. Um, but, how, you know, a La Liga team having Chucky Lozano would be a killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much, how much of a, a feeling do you have that there's other leagues watching this very closely, whether it's the Premier League, whether it's uh, Serie A, whether it's uh, Ligue 1, looking at La Liga and seeing, okay, in terms of the progress that you're making in the United States, trying to get a game off the ground, but opening the door then for other leagues to come in. And, and how, how aware are you of uh, the competition? I mean, I mean, if La Liga is the first on the market to actually make this happen, it gives you a huge advantage versus the other, the other leagues that are trying to compete on a global scale. Listen, I, I think that if we uh, don't do it, somebody else will soon enough. Uh, you've seen comments from Agnelli saying that he would want to have a match in the U.S. Um, I think last week uh, PSV actually said, I would take a league match to, to the U.S. So I, I think that the, un, the, the, the basic understanding of why you would do that Everybody gets it, and I don't think that anyone will disagree with. I think it's when you bring it down to the execution, all the different pieces that need to be aligned. Sure. Listen, hopefully we're able to sort all of them out, and there's an organized way to uh, get exposure uh, to the U.S. soccer market in a way that actually adds up to soccer here in the country. Let, let me ask you a little bit of a change of pace question. The Premier League in this country is the behemoth in terms of yeah. European football. It's the most popular league. It's more popular than Major League Soccer. Um, they have made their appeal based on two things, culture and entertainment. Now, I think if you talk to any objective soccer fan, maybe I'm... But I think Christopher and I would both agree that the technical level, just the quality of football in La Liga is I think significantly higher than the Premier League. Some would say, well, maybe it's just slightly higher. I'd say it's significantly higher right. uh, than what I watch. And I watch both leagues every weekend. So what is it in the U.S. market you haven't been able to do to convince people and to understand the technical level, the quality of football, this sort of thing? What, what, what is it? Why is La Liga lagging behind the Premier League? I, I think the Premier is a great case study for a successful international expansion. And just they've been doing it for much longer. Um, and uh, they have a great partner, I think, on, on NBC, and uh, they're pushing those games, you know, everywhere. Um, I don't know if they've had this season uh, uh, any game on, on broadcast TV. or a if it's number, on, a number, number, right? Uh, over the air NBC. Right. That helps. That helps a lot. I mean, you're getting in front of, what, 95 million people? Yeah. Whatever it might be. So, so that definitely helps. I, I think that, you know, La Liga's audience in the U.S., over the time has to be general market. Having said that, I think we have a huge opportunity with U.S. Hispanics. 
both Spanish language and English language and, and bilingual. Um, this is a demographic that's growing incredibly fast that you don't have to sell them on soccer. They, they know soccer, they love soccer, they follow it, they know La Liga and they follow it. You just need to actually make a, 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 a concerted effort to bring La Liga in front of them on a you know better way and through a longer period of time. I, I, I agree with that, but the one pushback I would have is I know a number of well, a good chunk of my friends are Hispanics. They would naturally be following La Liga. Their entrance was La Liga or Liga Mekis. Now they're watching the Premier League just because of the ease of access. You can watch it on NBC. You can follow it more easily. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a challenge. So, so that's, that, 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 that's one of the things that, that we are completely aware of, and that's why when I was explaining a little bit of the, of the scope of the joint venture, we want to focus on having an always-on content strategy and making sure that uh, the natural fans of La Liga can actually engage with it and interact, and, uh, and that's what we will be, what we will be doing. So La Liga is currently on BN Sports. They've had some the, some challenges with the distribution. Uh, that deal is through till uh, the summer of twenty uh, twenty. I think the end. Of, but but relevant sports partnering with La Liga in the United States to for this fifteen year deal, kicking off with a Girona Barcelona, as well as many other things that have been planned. Which part of, is television strategy and t- television rights part part of that that partnership between La Liga, La Liga and relevant sports, or, and where does that fall? Yeah, it it is, and we yeah. know it's a key piece of all of this. Um, but there is a deal in place, and uh, we are respectful for that, and we really hope that uh, Bini is able to uh, gain the carriage back. Um, uh, that they've lost in the past few months, uh, but we'll do, you know, as we do in, in, in any country, uh, we'll do anything that we can to help support the broadcast partner. And again, not being uh, 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 naive about the situation and just to your point, Cardic, just the, the, the easiness in watching one over the other. So, well, you know, again, I, I go back to this is a 15-year plan. This yeah. is not something that you know will end in a year, and we have to rush to. You know, this is this is something that we'll build um, with some sense of urgency, but we'll we'll make sure that it's built over time. What does the relevant sports provide to La Liga in terms of the next 15 years? So why partner with them? Obviously, ICC have experienced that, but were there other things that that uh, they brought to the table that was uh, attractive to La Liga? Yeah. So uh, this was a long process that La Liga ran. Uh, I think, yeah, well over a year um, where they had offers from the big sports marketing agencies in the country. They ended up picking relevant, uh, I guess, because of their serious commitment to soccer in the U.S., an infrastructure that they already have in place, to your point, with ICC. Um, And what they've done over the past, you know, six years or so is actually show that... uh, Again, there's a commitment to grow soccer that they are investing on that yeah. and that in that 15-year path, they will be the ones you know, better suited to actually uh, help grow the brand of La Liga. Yeah. And uh, so for, for listeners who want to uh, sign a petition, if, if they're in agreement with the idea in terms of having the Barcelona-Girona game, where can they go to go ahead and sign a petition? What, and what can they do to, to try and make the voice heard? Right. So we, we launched the petition on November 1st primarily because uh, we keep on hearing from the two or three, you know, influential voices in soccer saying, you know, I'm opposed to it because X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Uh, but we wanted to give the chance to local fans here uh, 
to voice their either support or not mm -hmm. to having a game. So we launched the petition. Uh, we're up to around 40,000 uh, uh, signers uh, two weeks in. Um, and there's a clear support. Again, just if you're a Miami-based soccer fan, you want to see an official league match here. Uh, it's tough to get to Spain. It's way more expensive. Uh, if we bring it close to them, they want to they, they go see it. So the, the yeah. website is bringusthegame.com. Okay. And, and what kind of, uh, uh, this will be my last question, what kind of uh, media feedback have you gotten on the petition? Because it was viewed with some skepticism, I have to say quite frankly for myself also, when it was launched, hearing 40,000 signatures, that's, that's an impressive number, I'll, I'll concede that. So what, what's been the feedback you've gotten from media, not just here in the States, but in Spain, uh, in Europe, since they're so important in making this decision, helping making this decision. Totally, and 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 again, uh, the the objective with the petition was to give that voice to the local fans. Um, I I think this all plays into the bigger uh, uh, discussion of should you know Spanish local fans lose a game or not. So I, we we were trying to isolate all of those variables and just see the amount of uh, uh, support that we could get here. Um, I, I think this is such a passionate issue that it's really tough to think that you'll uh, make somebody change their mind. If you are a soccer purist and you're a supporter of your local club and you do not want him to leave and you don't care about the growth of the industry or your team you know, from a business perspective, uh, you're, you're in that point. I don't think you're able to, to change it with any argument. On the other hand, we just want to show that there are some uh, really diehard soccer fans here, uh, followers of the big teams in Europe that want to have the chance to actually see a match live. I think publicly, Major League Soccer has been pretty quiet on this. They haven't said a lot in terms of whether they're for or against it. Uh, I would imagine that they would be against it in terms of just fearing that it's kind of a it's a, it's a new league coming out onto their turf. Um, is there anything you can say in terms of Major League Soccer? I, listen, I, I, I think that uh, the, the more... Uh, we can have conversation and explain the real reasons why we want to do it and work together to actually make sure that we are growing soccer here jointly yeah. should ease a lot of those concerns. Sure. Um, so we are hoping to have not one but many conversations with, with the MLS about it. Do you see it as kind of a rising tide in terms of helping soccer throughout the entire time? Totally. I, I, again, I, I think that if the concern was that this one match will impact negatively attendance to MLS games or just, you know, uh, uh, investment going from one league to the other. Again, it's one match. Yeah. I think that if that's the concern, we should be thinking about, you know, blackouts on uh, the TV broadcast of the EPL and La Liga. You know, that actually has, I mean, right. you have millions of people watching. Yeah. European soccer every weekend here. If you want them to not watch soccer and go to an MLS, you sure. know, game, then put a blackout on it. Would La Liga be open to having, say, a partnership with, say, Inter Miami in Miami for games in Girona, Barcelona, having a, a season ticket drive or some type of partnership together, working together? Hand totally, hand. and that's that's a conversation that we started having a few weeks ago with a uh, with a team um, behind the, the the Miami franchise. Anything that we can do to help them grow the following and jumpstart it, even you know, taking 
uh, Inter-Miami to Spain to play a game um, and get them exposure. Of, again, that's going to be good for La Liga there as well. So you would be welcome to Major League Soccer playing in Ab- Spain? Absolutely, absolutely. And then lastly, I mean, definitely uh, your hiring uh, for La Liga in the United States is a, a big big statement in terms of La Liga looking at the United States and saying it, making a commitment to this, this country to, to grow the game. Can you talk to us more about um, the, the team that you have in place in, in the United States and, sure. and how that can help uh, grow La Liga? Sure. So so this is not, you know, uh, uh, this was not a PR statement and that was it. There's actually commitment both from La Liga and Relevant to have a dedicated structure a detailed business plan with a strategy to grow uh, uh, La Liga in the U.S., bring new revenues, get exposure for the clubs. Um, so we are up to, uh, we're a team of uh, six at this point, making one more hire before the end of the year. Um, so there's that, that fully dedicated to the joint venture. Um, and then on top of that, all the support that we'll get from relevant and different areas uh, that will make the organization have a bigger impact. Let's move on to TV streaming news. And uh, first up, let's talk about um, what we learned and some of our observations from SoccerX um, this past uh, week, this Thursday and Friday. Just, just, just for listeners too. So SoccerX is really kind of a, a conference um, focused more on the leaders of soccer in the world. So a lot of um, uh, league officials, a lot of club officials. Uh, more the exact, mostly executives, um, and of course you've kind of filtered down. And you have a whole varied, you know, whether it's media or anything kind of associated with that. But what were some of your observations, Kartik, from uh, SoccerX this past week? Well, I mean, I, I thought that uh, MLS was out in full force, and there was a lot of just general interest around the globe uh, in terms of what Major League Soccer. Um, is going to bring to the table here in South Florida, where the conference was held. Um, there was no uh, no European Super League talk that I could pick up on Nothing. in the entire building, which which shocked me because I thought they might actually make an announcement to this thing. Um, I think we we heard a lot about the plans for the Bundesliga and La Liga and Serie A uh, and Ajax. Ajax opened the New York office of. To uh, coincide with uh, this conference, uh, we heard a lot about the, that and, and their plans for the U.S. market. But it's the same stuff we hear over and over again. I think of those leagues, La Liga, uh, iris- uh, you know, with qualifying it with their current television deal, which is a problem, um, is is better positioned than all those other leagues. Well, that, well, uh, although, Syria, go well, ahead. What, what I would say, <clears throat> pardon me, about about uh, about a meeting like this, a co- kind of conference like this is that um, I think a lot of the closed-door meetings were probably going on. Um, but publicly, it was a very PR, very PC type type of discussions. It wasn't a lot of... Yep. Even, even the panel discussions they had, there wasn't kind of heated debates. It was very much very scripted. Um, so there's no friction, very little friction at all. So I think oftentimes uh, I had heard rumors that... Um, Major League Soccer had had some closed door meetings with uh, some of the other leagues, 
Um, but again, closed doors, kind of behind the scenes, either the day before or the day after this. And uh, the face that was presented uh, of soccer at Soccer X was kind of that we're all getting along. So surprisingly, I was hoping that there'd be some discussion or some some uh, some scuttlebutt or kind of rumors about the European Super League, but there was nothing, no- nothing to be heard. One one thing Kartik yeah. I thought was very interesting though that we did hear is that um, from a couple of different sources, um, one of which was actually um, that works for DAZN, is that DAZN has been offering lots of money large sums of money to the different uh, broadcasters in the United States hoping to pick up soccer rights. So, for example, right now, DAZN has launched a platform in September. Um, they have a really strong streaming platform. It's mostly boxing and I think, uh, I think MMA, but there's, there's very little soccer on there. And actually, there's very little soccer rights available anyway, so that, that most of the rights uh, have, been, have been bought. Uh, the next time, most of the rights will come up for sale. It's probably about two years from now. So for a streaming platform to be in the United States, to have relatively no soccer, uh, they're, they're having discussions. They're, they're going to different broadcasters and saying, hey, you have a ton of soccer rights. Would you be interested in sub-licensing some of those rights to us? We'll pay you a large sum of money to, to acquire those rights and to show, show those through streaming. So that's something to keep an eye out for, I'd say, in the next six months to six to 12 months, is that could happen where, say, whether it's I mean, hypothetically a fox uh, says that, you know what, we've got all these rights to, to some of these uh, Liga MX games, or we've got some of the rights to some, uh, I don't know, uh, Bundesliga games. We'd be interested in sub-licensing those to DAZN. So that, that's something to keep an eye out for. One other thing, Kartik, in terms of some of the observations and things we learned from SoccerX is that it looks very likely that Inter-Miami, the, the new um, MLS team in Miami, is going to play at Marlins Park uh, temporarily in the 2020 season. There have been talk about uh, playing in several different uh, stadiums throughout South Florida, but it looks very likely that that's going to happen, playing at the baseball stadium. And yeah. uh, Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, in general, uh, given the, the timing of the conference, too, which coincided with this uh, embarrassing week for the United States men's national team, it just reinforced that, uh, to me, that, that the, the main driver for uh, the elites in, in American soccer is money and profits and marketing, and that actually the on-field product and the product they're producing domestically doesn't matter as much to them. In fact, many of them don't care. I mean, I, I think there might have been people at the conference unaware that the United States was playing at Wembley in the middle of the conference. So yep. uh, that's just the way it is. I mean, this is this is the, the direction we've gone. We are excessively obsessed with profits and capitalism. So um, we have to deal with it. We have to just understand that as we approach things. Yeah, it seemed to be very focused on, uh, I mean, the whole conference was focused on kind of um, increasing revenues in, in terms of uh, money. It was really focused on uh, profits more than it was about performance, performance of teams. Uh, the two go hand in hand in many ways, but it did seem very much focused on, I mean, how can we grow as partners? How, what can we do to work together and, and things like that? One last thing, Kartik, that was an interesting observation. I think you missed this on, on Friday. It was later in the day on Friday. There was a panel discussion with um, one of the, uh, the top uh, executives at Wasserman. And Wasserman's one of the uh, agencies that works um, and actually represents a lot of soccer cl- clients. So whether it's uh, sports athletes, uh, etc. And there was a discussion about, uh, with some lawyers on hand, one of which I think was uh, Richard Motskin, who's... Uh, an executive vice president at Wasserman. 
And he mentioned, and, and also there was another lawyer on the panel too that agreed, they were talking about uh, uh, U.S. law and, and also uh, uh, promotion and relegation. And what they said was that uh, we believe that U.S. law trumps FIFA law in that promotion relegation would not happen in the United States because um, just because FIFA has the laws. I mean, you look at the, the FIFA kind of guidelines and articles, and it mentions in their promotion relegation. And they say, okay, well, well the U.S. is different, and, and that is because uh, U.S. law trumps FIFA law. W- what's your take on that? Well, well, the statute that prohibits promotion and relegation in the United States, I've never seen it in the U.S. code, first off. And secondly, no other nation seems to have this this uh, this law on the books. So uh, the U.S. is quite an exceptional and extraordinary place to have a law forbidding promotion and relegation uh, in its uh, civil code. Yeah, I, 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 I don't I don't know what to say. It's just they, they'll come up with new excuses. It, it's it's. Yeah. There, there is no law prohibiting promotion and relegation in the United States. I'm almost certain of that. Now, you could argue – lawyers find ways to argue, oh, well, you can't give them an antitrust exemption. Oh, is the USSF a voluntary organization or is it a, a compulsory organization if you're, uh, if you're a, a professional league in soccer, et cetera, et cetera? We can have – those discussions are all very interesting, but – um, I don't think that that is a, <laughs> I don't think that that means you can't have promotion and relegation uh, under U.S. law. It, it, it's uh, now they're falling back on this because the tea leaves and, 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 the, and the winds are pushing towards promotion and relegation. And again, uh, this is a defense mechanism. They, they don't have these problems if the men's national team is performing better than they are. But they've hit a ceiling because, um, as I've said, MLS is improving, as you said earlier, improving as a league because of the players from the Caribbean, players from Central America, players from South America. The actual development of American players has stagnated mm-hmm. during this fa- phase of great of huge growth in the league, this phase where the league is trying to improve its product and, and make more money that's the determining factor of everything right it's always about money in the u.s with u.s soccer elites so they have uh, forsaken player development and the development of the domestic player for um for this short-termism uh, major league soccer has in particular usl to a lesser extent and now what we've got is this situation where um people are saying well players aren't developing because there's no incentive to develop players in a closed league system bingo that's correct so um now you're getting the excuses as to why you can't implement promotion and relegation it all goes back to what we started the podcast with the failure of the men's national team has incredible ramifications and for those who want to be kind of blissfully ignorant and say oh well soccer is so popular in this country now and we have all these great mls teams and these great markets that's the term that we heard all the, over and over again right at soccer x um it goes from clubs clubs if you're having a discussion with europeans to markets if you're having a discussion with americans um then you know that's fine but I think the, 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 the people making decisions, including uh, guys like Rich Motskin, uh, who has a great deal of power within the game in this country, uh, for those of you who don't know him, just look him up. Uh, they, they, they realize that the, the, this current situation is untenable uh, to maintain the status quo with the national team performing as poorly as they are. I don't think it's that ironic that that came the day after that England game, that performance we talked about earlier. Uh, it, but it's 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 a, it's. A, it is absurd. Um, I would was, love to. Yeah, go I, I was going to say that, that that was something I heard several times during the Soccer X, and that was kind of on the panel discussions where there was a discussion from people around the world, whether it be somebody from a club in, say, Europe or South America, and a couple of panelists from from the United States. And the theme I kept on hearing was that, um, yeah, 
uh, the United States does soccer differently. We're not like the other countries. We, we do things our own way. And that was something that kind of evolved into the discussion about uh, promotion relegation. Like, well, yeah, that's fine for FIFA, but, but we're doing things differently here. And, and, and that, was, that was alarming, Kartik, because I thought, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, yeah. basically it's the U.S. drive. I mean, this, this conference really was driven mostly by Major League Soccer. Most of the, the people speaking in, in the sessions, most of them were either connected to or related to, uh, to, to Major League Soccer, uh, mostly MLS more, more so. So it was a very MLS-driven platform. And um, I don't know, I, I just, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way at, at times in terms of some of the things that were brought up. Yeah, I, I would say the whole thing rubbed me the wrong way based on that because this is a fundamental issue here. Okay, you, I know the the the, the, sport, the business of sport has really uh, grown up, particularly the business of, of this sport, football, soccer, in the last uh, fifteen to twenty years. But is this fundamentally still about sport, or is it about? Is it just like attending any business. other business conference? Yeah. Right? Yeah, any business. other? I could be in any any other industry and attend the conference and hear the same things. Yeah. Basically, yeah. So. Uh, the fundamental, uh, and I and I blame Americans more than Europeans for this. Uh, the fundamental, uh, the fundamental fabric of the sport is being ripped out. I would love to see this litigated. If if uh, there's a feeling, if there's a league now in in uh, the U.S. Uh, that implements promotion and relegation, there might be in the next few years. It won't be Major League Soccer, but it might be any of the other leagues that are, that are around. I would love to see this litigated to see what U.S. law. Um, these folks who are saying it's against U.S. law, but yet it's somehow legal in every other nation in, uh, on the planet. I mean, we have some mm-hmm. exceptional uh, code in this country, if that's the case, uh, or just you know some very good lawyers, I guess. Um, I, w- I would love to see this litigated and see what, what exactly they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. All right, let's move on. Um, the next news item is that according to The Athletic, it looks very likely that MLS is going to finally make some changes to their calendar uh, beginning, beginning in 2019. The changes include playing the MLS Cup final in early November instead of early December, plus the two-legged semifinal and final conference games will likely be single elimination games instead of two-legged affairs. As part of the changes, MLS is, uh, plans on increasing the number of teams that can qualify for the playoffs. Currently, out of uh, the teams in Major League Soccer, 52% of those can uh, qualify for the, the, the playoffs. In 2019, it's likely to increase to 58%. Uh, in 2020, that'll decrease uh, to 53%. And by 2021 or 2022, we'll be at 50%. Uh, the other big change is that uh, Major League Soccer is considering scheduling more midweek games instead of weekend matches for the 2019 season onwards. Now, Kartik, my take on this is that um, the midweek matches usually have better viewing figures uh, than, um, than weekend matches. They're up against you mean, NFL or college football. It's a good move. Uh, it's, it's certainly going to hurt attendance records. But finally, I think Major League Soccer is making some moves on the TV side to appease ESPN, Fox Sports, uh, and Univision, and also going into the next, uh, the bidding for the next uh, right cycle for uh, rights to Major League Soccer that will certainly, uh, I think, uh, give a little bit of, um, it, it'll appease, uh, I think, a lot of the, the TV companies. But overall, what's, what, what's your thoughts on uh, some of the, these proposed changes? 
I think that they're probably um, overdue, but again, they're with they're with business in mind, not with uh, uh, the, the sport in mind. Because you shorten the season, that that that's putting the players who play in Major League Soccer, be they from Paraguay or or, or from Jamaica or from the United States, at a disadvantage uh, in, in terms of uh, their international careers, etc. Because they're just not getting uh, as sustained uh, high level football as. as uh, players playing in Europe uh, or in South American leagues. Now, um, that having been said, I think from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Midweek games don't necessarily draw as well on TV during the summer, but during the fall, uh, they absolutely do. I mean, the playing matches on the weekends in the fall, going head to head with college football uh, and the NFL has has proven to be suicidal uh, with a couple of exceptions. Red Bull Atlanta went up against um, an NFL, a bunch of NFL games, one o'clock kickoff. Uh, Eastern time about six weeks ago and did okay actually um, uh, on ESPN, uh, but that, that that I think might have been the lone exception this year. So I think this is a good thing. I think that uh, in terms of the, the business perspective, I also think interestingly enough, um, this will give perhaps the top MLS players a chance um, to to go out on loan to Europe with a little more of a of a, of a uh, um, opportunity to do that since mls moved the mls cup from november um from early to mid-november generally it was this week during the international break and then they start since they started observing the international breaks including this one uh and pushed mls cup into december you've seen no players go on loan to european clubs whereas you used to see uh, two or three a year go when they would play six six to eight weeks over there i mean i remember ben olsen going to Not- nottingham forest and more recently uh, uh omar gonzalez going to uh nuremberg where he got injured but um uh, guys going and, and getting games or at least getting some training uh, at top level european clubs and coming back and staying fit during during the close season so maybe from a football standpoint to a certain extent as we're talking about this it works also all right and one last piece of news Kartik, before we move on yeah, BT uh, Sport, who've lost a number of properties recently, lose the Scottish Premiership rights uh, in the UK to Sky Sports, who, of course, lo- uh, Sky Sports, of course, have a hole in their program because they lost La Liga to 11 sports uh, starting this season. Yeah, so Sky Sports have picked up uh, the Championship and the Scottish uh, Premiership, and uh, both in five-year deals for the UK only. Uh, moving on, just TV ratings. We don't have a lot to talk about uh, this uh, this week in that regard uh, because we're still waiting to get a lot of these international numbers in for the uh, UEFA Nations League games. But there was one which was uh, the friendly between England and USA on ESPN2 on Thursday. And um, that one was 310,000 viewers uh, from 245 to 445 Eastern. Moving on to listener mailbag. Raymond Orozco, I have been listening to this podcast for a long time. I still can't believe Lawrence left you guys for the true Geordie. And I I found all your content throughout the years entertaining and and informative. When I watched ESPN FC after the USA versus England game, the honest coverage of the post-game, I believe, is a direct result of your program. I want to thank you as a USA fan. Anthony Bello says, Hi, guys, I would like uh, to concede three points to Kartik from last week. First, yes... The Premier League was based off the NFL. In fact, uh, in the the Mihirabos uh, book called Game Changer, gives the account of David Hill from Sky. Uh, once in the season, shorter like the NFL, he was laughed at. Second, has the NFL gotten more TV friendly in the past decade? Yes, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the big games were stuck at uh, 1 p.m., which is the equivalent of putting the big Premier League match of the week in the three o'clock window. The NFL now has more national TV windows. 
and has gotten smarter with the schedule to maximize viewership. And finally, I will agree that Major League Baseball teams have more of an individual identity than NFL teams. In fact, I would say that teams in the NBA and NHL have more of an individual identity than NFL teams. But there is a reason behind this. The NFL sells its TV rights as a single league package, while the Major League Baseball, NBA and NHL have so many games, the teams sell most of its TV rights and they can market themselves on the broadcast. Have a happy Thanksgiving and congratulations on your 100th show next week. Uh, Paul Scanlon says uh, breakaway leagues are inevitable. The question is, what will the FAs do about it? Also, how does the Bundesliga feel about Fox? Would they rather go with someone with a better reputation? Kartik, that, that, that's a tough one in terms of Fox because... Um, as we know, the Bundesliga's deal with Fox, which is up, uh, I think, in 2020, um, is is a global deal. So it's one of those things that uh, it wasn't as if Fox Sports USA said, OK, we want the Bundesliga. We, that, that's, that's our top priority. It was a global Fox Sports um, project to acquire the rights globally, except for a few markets. And uh, so there was no buy-in. So how does the Bundesliga feel about Fox? If we had a guess... I think there's disappointment there, but um, but they're being pretty quiet about it, so we don't know for sure. Yeah. John John Average Geek says NFL closed league is bad. NFL competitive balance is good. It's week to week and year to year. Salary cap, revenue sharing. By the way, I hate NFL and the idea of a super league. Raymond Orozco, I must be the only person who loves the extreme capitalistic nature of European football. I think it delivers the best products. Courting Wall Street greed is good. Ultimately, fans are consumers, and I believe will tune into the best product available to them. And I am opposed to any type of salary cap or luxury tax. Soccer friends have told me for a long time that European soccer is boring because of the same teams that win it. But since I started watching European soccer, I've run into way more Bayern Munich fans, PSG fans, Man United fans, Man City fans, Barcelona fans, Real Madrid fans, than your lords, than your lord here teams. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, in my experience, if it's the big teams that drive, it's, it's the big teams that drive interest. Setting limitations and spending in, in acquiring talent globally is only going to handicap your league or your region and speed up other competitors. What's your take on that one, Kartik? Well, this is the, the catch-22 because, I mean, I know um, the big teams drive the, the uh, interest in the United States and China and Malaysia and uh, places like that. Uh, they do not drive interest in England or in Germany. Or in, well, I mean, Bayern is the most popular team in, in Germany, but you would be surprised how many members. Germany, it's easy to track because they have, they have actual members of their clubs. Um, how many members Schalke and uh, Eintracht and uh, Dortmund and how, uh, those three in particular have, uh, how big those clubs really are. So I, I think it's a catch-22 because for these leagues to grow abroad um, and interest in football to grow abroad, soccer, I, I completely agree. It's got to be done through the big clubs. But I think domestically there are club supporters, people who actually support their clubs uh, at a grassroots level and are the ones who, who, who go to matches, who are who are really tired of it. I mean, I, I've been struck, Chris. I, I don't know. You may have had different experiences than me. But I've been struck when I go to England how few, how many football fans tell me they don't like the Premier League there in that country. Uh, and, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, it's 
And it's for this reason. I mean, yeah. we can have critiques about level of play and all of that, which I give, but they they don't like it for this reason. That's yeah, predictable. It's you know, there was the a good piece. There was a good piece in Football Three Sixty Five this week by uh, John Nicholson, who's been on this podcast many times in the past. We've interviewed him. Is uh, a great guy. Has, has fantastic opinions, and uh, it doesn't hold back. And, and it was a very very. Uh, negative piece about the Premier League saying that the Premier League has added no value to people in the UK it's 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 a money-making machine um, that really has hurt the game and uh, if you get a chance check it out it's definitely a good piece to to read uh, whether you agree with him or not but it's um, yeah yeah this, like, I think it's I think the bottom line Chris sorry to cut you off but I think the bottom line is there's a disconnect between domestic fans and fan, global fans, and yeah. that's oh, driving everything. That's huge. the catch twenty. Yeah, and and that's the thing I keep on saying is that the Premier League is not an English league. The La Liga is not a Spanish league. Um, they're, they're they're global leagues. I mean, it has yes, those games are housed and played in England and and in Spain respectively, but uh, and the reality is these are global teams. Bayern Munich or Barcelona or Real Madrid are supported worldwide. They have, I mean, millions of fans across the entire world. It's not just a domestic game anymore, um, and and that changes things. Um, whether it's for the good or, 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 or better or for worse, whatever it may be, but uh, it changes things completely. Last but not least, uh, the last comment is from uh, Rocco Richardson, who posted this on Twitter. Uh, we, we responded to this one, Kartik, on Twitter, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question. He says, uh, why, why doesn't the English FA adopt an American football-type scheduling for, at least, for its teams and games? Like Fridays for one league, Saturday for another league, and Sunday for the Premier League. And um, you were pretty uh, polite in your response, Kartik. I was a little bit more harsh. I, I said, okay, you've had leagues that have been playing for 130 years, and... Uh, now we want to Americanize when those games are played. Kind of almost like even you know, college football has Saturdays and NFL has Sundays. Um, but to me, it's ridiculous because you have league games, whether you're in cha- you know, the championship, League One, League Two, practically almost every day of the week. Um, and you're not going to try to. I mean, and, and the FAs have less control. So the EFL says, okay, we, we're going to have games on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. We're also going to have some midweek games too. Uh, maybe Thursday is the only day of the week that they don't have any games. The Premier League is going to go ahead and do what they want to do. They're not going to be uh, waiting for the FA to, to give them permission to, to show games on Fridays or whatever it may be. But, um, but to me, I, I thought, uh, I know this comment, this question upset me, Kartik, because um, it felt like even this person is trying to Americanize the, uh, the sport. Yeah, and and I just have to reemphasize, and this is what I tried to do in my response, because maybe uh, there's some disconnect here in the states with with the way football is in the UK. the The traditional kickoff time for matches in the UK is three o'clock local time on a Saturday. All games. Every all, other. I mean, all back in the day, all games were played at that time. Correct. And in Germany, it is 3.30 p.m. on a uh, uh, local time on a Saturday. Every match that is at a different time in the in the Premier League and the Bundesliga has already been, has already been manipulated or and in the championship and in Bundesliga, too, has been manipulated by television and Americanization already. Fans are used to going to their matches. Uh, you said for hundreds of years. I don't know if the, the, the kickoff times have been that long, but for decades at, at, at the same time. So that's why it won't work. Um, now, maybe in Spain and Italy, there's more randomness in, in the times. I, I actually, I don't know. I don't know the history of Spain and Italian football, uh, Spanish and Italian football 
the domestic club games the way I know the English and German history. So maybe it's the same. Maybe they had a traditional kickoff time in Spain and Italy, like Germany and England did. Um, but it's I, I, it's just impossible. It's not it's not going to happen. Yeah, Kartik, and I admire your politeness too in responding to Rocco through Twitter too, because I, I was it, it pissed me off that one, one question. But if listeners, if you do have any questions for us, I, I will definitely try to be polite and definitely give you a good response. Um, so whether it's uh, you want advice about streaming or watching games on television or apps, or have any feedback, any rants or raves, or uh, disagree with anything we say or agree, let us know. We'd love to read those out on air. You can always reach us through email at web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and on twitter at worldsoccertalk plus of course you can always post comments on worldsoccertalk.com so in closing um if you guys want to uh, listen to the podcast we, re- we release it every thursday uh whether it's on itunes soundcloud stitcher etc so definitely uh tune in to us we'll be back uh, every week and uh, for those listeners uh, in the United States, I uh, want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And Kartik, going into another week, we've got a, a bu- busy week of football. We've got the River Boca, uh, Copa Libertadores, uh, second leg of the final on Saturday, as well as tons more club soccer games. The international break is over. Uh, what, can, what, what could they do and what should they do? Oh, I have to tell you, the international break this time won me over, so I'm not quite as enthusiastic about the return to club football as I normally am, but enjoy your football. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.